I'm Julia Chastley in New York. Welcome to First Move as always. It's great to be with you this Thursday as we digest what the US Fed said. Plus some short-lived ECB messaging glee, a Swiss rate hike guarantee and the BOE's post-Jubilee decree. I tell you what, British celebrations now long forgotten with the Bank of England following the Fed's king-sized hike with a queen-sized quarter-point rise in interest rates today. That's a fifth hike in succession. I tell you what, too, the market price action over the last 24 hours best described as a royal ruckus also. U.S. stocks rallied after the Fed's three-quarter point move. You can take your pick on why. Confirmation, perhaps, that the Fed is now serious about tackling soaring prices come what may or even a relief rally after Jay Powell hinted that the next hike might not be so large, though it still might be because he ruled nothing out. And I think that's part of what we're seeing play out in financial markets today. I have an excuse for everything. Sentiment has turned sharply lower. Just take a look at this. Wall Street set to give back much of yesterday's gains, if not more. Europe also dropping in sympathy too. Stocks in Switzerland joining the sell-off after their central bank hiked rates by a surprise half a percentage point too. What we're looking at now is a global tightening campaign with central bankers everywhere blindsided by soaring inflation. And the message from Jay Powell, it seems, is the Fed won't stop tightening anytime soon. Ultimately, we're not going to declare victory until we see a series of these, you know, really see convincing evidence, compelling evidence that inflation is coming down. And that's what I mean by that's what it would take for us to say, okay, we think uh, we think this is this job is done. Christine Raymond joins me now, and we're clearly nowhere near that at this stage, Christine. I was sort of puzzled by the market reaction, which is why I was sort of arguing it all different ways. But the bottom line is the messaging yesterday, very different from the Federal Reserve. A lot of those old forecasts completely ripped up. And now it seems they're cutting to grip with the challenge they face. Yeah, and no playbook. And it's data dependent. And, you know, maybe we won't have big moves like this again, but maybe not. You, you know, we just... We just don't know exactly. And I think the market is grappling with that a little bit. Also, you know, Jack Lew, the former Treasury Secretary, the NATO Secretary General is speaking in Brussels. I'm going to take you live there just to listen in to him. We'll come back to you. For the NATO summit in Madrid in two weeks from now. Russia's war against Ukraine poses the biggest threat to our security in decades. So we must uh, set out NATO's response for the longer term. At the summit, we will take decisions to make NATO even stronger and more agile in a world that is more dangerous and more competitive. I'm confident that uh, the Madrid summit uh, will be a transformative summit with uh, important decisions, not uh, least in five key areas significantly stronger deterrence and defense, sustained support for Ukraine and other partners at risk, and I'm pleased that uh, President Zelensky will participate in our summit. We will also decide on a new NATO strategic concept, setting out our position on Russia, on emerging challenges, and for the first time on China. And in this context, I welcome that the leaders of our Asia-Pacific partners will take part in our summit for the first time. Last but not least, better burden sharing and resourcing of our alliance 
and the historic uh, applications for membership by Finland and Sweden. At this ministerial in Brussels uh, yesterday and today, we have made progress on many of these uh, areas. Last night, we met with uh, Ukrainian Defence Minister Resnikov. We addressed uh, the imperative need for our continued support as Russia conducts a relentless war of attrition against Ukraine. NATO allies and partners have been providing Ukraine unprecedented support so that it can defend itself against Moscow's aggression. Allies have announced additional assistance, including much-needed heavy weapons and long-range systems. We also discussed plans to support the country for the longer term. We are putting together a NATO comprehensive assistance package for Ukraine, helping Ukraine improve interoperability with NATO, transition from Soviet era uh, to modern NATO equipment, and further strengthening security institutions. Yesterday, over 40 nations, NATO allies and partners took part in the meeting of the Ukraine Support Contact Group, led by the United States, and committed to continue to uphold Ukraine's right to self-defense. Georgia, Finland, Sweden, and the European Union also joined the meeting of NATO defense ministers. We made clear uh, that uh, all countries have the right to choose uh, their own path with outside, uh, uh, with outside, uh, without outside interference. Russia's aggression is a game changer, so NATO must maintain credible deterrence and strong defense. Today, ministers addressed uh, the scale and the design our future posture and how we can step up across all domains with substantial strengthening of our presence, capabilities and readiness. This will mean more NATO forward deployed combat formations to strengthen our battle groups in the eastern part of the alliance, more air, sea and cyber defences as well as pre-positioned equipment and weapon stockpiles and a new force model with more forces at higher readiness and specific forces pre-assigned to the defense of specific allies to enable much faster reinforcement. A number of allies have committed to contribute to our stronger presence in the eastern part of our alliance, but we still have some work to do as we look to the summit uh, where I expect further announcements. The substantial strengthening of deterrence and defence is necessary for our security, but it does not come for free, so ministers also discussed the importance of resourcing our decisions. We have seen seven consecutive years of rising defence investment across Europe uh, and Canada. Allies are also contributing to NATO deployments and exercises, and investing in more high-end capabilities, including fifth-generation aircraft and emerging technologies. Now is the time to keep up the momentum so we can continue to preserve peace, prevent conflict and protect our people. And with that, I'm ready to take your questions. Okay, Frank Vitalia Meine Zeitung, in the last row. There. 
Thanks a lot. Uh, Thomas Kuczka, Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung. Um, Secretary General, um, the Pope has made a few remarks on NATO's possible contribution to the war in Ukraine. He said that we don't know the whole drama unfolding behind this war, which was, and I quote him, somehow either provoked or not prevented. Um, we all know the Pope can claim infallibility for his remarks, maybe not for this one, but um, I'd be keen to hear your reply. Thanks. So NATO is a defensive alliance, and uh, the war in Ukraine is uh, President Putin's war. This is a war uh, that he has decided to conduct against an independent sovereign nation, and uh, what NATO uh, has been doing for many years is to support a sovereign independent nation in Europe, Ukraine, uh, uh, train, assist and advise uh, and equip the Ukrainian armed forces. That is what NATO allies and NATO have uh, done for many years. Uh, this is not a threat to anyone. This is not a provocation. And, um, and, uh, and, uh, and that is what we continue uh, to do. So it, it is President Putin uh, and Moscow that is responsible for uh, this uh, brutal aggression against the independent uh, uh, country, uh, Ukraine. Okay, we'll go to the National uh, News Agency of Ukraine. No? No. Uh, thank you so much for question. Uh, expectations in Ukraine uh, because of a big free visiting Ukraine. I mean, leaders of uh, France, uh, um, Germany and Italy. Uh, I'm just curious if uh, they consulted uh, NATO before coming to Kiev uh, from the security and uh, military point of view and uh, uh, how that visit could be uh, influencing uh, the future cooperation in military field between the NATO and uh, Ukraine. And a uh, short follow-up, uh, if I may. If uh, Ukraine now is fighting for NATO values uh, using uh, the NATO weaponry, uh, is it the uh, right time uh, to raise a question or consider the future membership of uh, Ukraine in NATO? Thank you. I welcome that leaders uh, of NATO allied countries uh, go to Kiev and visit uh, Ukraine and meet with the political leadership, meet with President Zelensky and also uh, see the atrocities, uh, the result of the brutal uh, aggression by Moscow and President Putin in uh, Ukraine. I think that is important uh, to demonstrate solidarity, to convey a clear political message and also, of course, uh, uh, to have that uh, opportunity to consult uh, with uh, the political leadership in Kiev. Um, uh, we are uh, uh, also, of course, uh, consulting with the political leadership in Kiev here in Brussels in different NATO capitals. Uh, we had the Defence Minister Resnikov participating in the meeting yesterday. And, of course, we also consult uh, uh, among ourselves uh, between NATO allies, uh, as we also did yesterday uh, in the dinner where we had the European Union, Finland and Sweden, together with uh, Minister Resnikov and uh, all 30 NATO allies, discussing the way forward uh, in our support to Ukraine. And also uh, we had a meeting of the US-led uh, support group uh, here at NATO uh, yesterday. Uh, more than 40 NATO uh, uh, allies and partners um, uh, participated uh, in, um, in that uh, meeting, consulting, discussing how to uh, sustain uh, an unprecedented level of support to Ukraine. And also in that context, welcome the 
announcement by the United States yesterday to further increase support, 1 billion uh, uh, US extra for military aid, including uh, um, uh, artillery and uh, also uh, long-range uh, fires. So, so, so this is part of a ongoing uh, process where allies are consulting and work, working together um, in many different uh, uh, ways to provide support to Ukraine. Uh, our focus now is uh, on support to Ukraine uh, to provide um, military support, uh, lethal, non-lethal support from uh, allies and, uh, and from uh, NATO um, and, um, and also on capacity building and this helped to modernize more for the longer term the defense and security institutions of Ukraine. Let me add one more thing, and that is that NATO allies have provided support to Ukraine since 2014, uh, training tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers uh, and also helped to equip uh, and strengthen the Ukrainian armed forces. It's first and foremost the bravery, the courage of the Ukrainian armed forces that are now able to fight back against uh, uh, the invading Russian forces, but the NATO support for many years is also making a, 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 a huge difference on the battleground uh, every day. Okay, we'll go to Politico. Uh, thank you very much, Lee Bayer from Politico. I have two questions. The first is on the new model which you described on uh, pre-assigned forces. Um, did any new countries offer troops today uh, for the eastern flank under this new model? And if so, how many and for which frontline countries? And my second question is, have you made any progress today on the tricky question of more common funding for the alliance? Thank you. First, on the new uh, force model, uh, we uh, made a significant progress both on agreeing uh, the exact uh, modalities, uh, elements of the new force model, but also we heard uh, several allies indicating uh, that they will provide uh, new national announcements to contribute to the new force model. Uh, I think it's a bit wrong if I now start to announce on behalf of, on behalf of those allies. I'm certain that they will uh, make the announcements uh, well ahead of the uh, NATO summit in two weeks' time. Uh, but we know that already Germany has been out there announcing uh, readiness to provide extra support uh, and also specific pre-assigned forces for Lithuania. And we've also seen announcements uh, earlier from, uh, from the United Kingdom uh, uh, and then, of course, we also see other allies like France playing a leading role in, um, in, in Romania, leading the battle group there, uh, and also France participating in many other ways, for instance, also with uh, some war presence in, um, in, uh, in Estonia and, and air policing. So, by the summit, I'm confident that we have both agreed the force model, which is the framework, but also that we have more forces uh, pre-assigned uh, 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 and, uh, and delivered by NATO allies to underpin this new uh, force model. Um, uh, then uh, on common funding, well, that's part of what we are preparing for the summit. Um, we made a decision at the summit last year uh, to invest more together. Uh, we have received uh, uh, requirements from our military commanders, and now we're working on that. Uh, and again, I'm confident that uh, within two weeks, we'll, by the summit, we will have more concrete uh, decisions. 
Okay. Um, okay, we're going to leave an animated NATO Secretary General there, wrapping up two days of talks between NATO and their allies. He made the statement similar as he's made before that Russia's war against Ukraine poses the biggest threat to our security in decades. The message, I think, from these two day talks is more NATO in many ways ahead of that NATO summit in two weeks' time. Stronger deterrence and defense, new concepts and approach will be defined to nations like Russia, China and other challenges. Asia-Pacific partners will also be present at that meeting, I think, which is an important point. And, of course, to the point about more NATO, the fact that Georgia, Finland and Sweden were also represented in addition to Ukraine at these meetings. Nick Robertson joins us now. Nick, my takeaway there, more NATO in various guises two weeks out from this meeting. And who's positioning ahead of that? What was your takeaway? Yeah, it's going to be a stronger, more nimble, more ready, more responsive, more reactive, more of exactly what President Putin didn't want when he went to war in Ukraine. He said that essentially NATO was getting closer and, and, and the NATO's response now has been to defend and deter. And to do that, we heard from uh, 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 Secretary General Stoltenberg there, talk about this concept of, you know, pre-assigned forces to specific nations, um, pre, uh, pre-located military equipment in places in these, in these nations on the east and flank of NATO. The most, we're being told, uh, the sort of heaviest pre-positioning, pre-planning uh, since the Cold War. So what this, what this means in essence is that specific NATO nations, and he hinted there at France and Romania, we know the French have a commitment there already. Uh, we know that other nations like, like Britain uh, in, in the Baltics and, 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 and uh, uh, United States in Poland already have sort of deep commitments and connections with forces there. But the way that NATO has had its forces deployed there until the past six months has been on a rotational basis. This is going much more solid, locking them in, bigger numbers, equipment there. Uh, so this is a response really to Russia. This is the long-term response and planning. And, and as well, I think the other important thing were there was this really strong commitment. It's been, it was ad hoc in the beginning. It's beginning to take stronger shape. We know that the Ukrainians have wanted more heavy military equipment. Uh, the talk there about the, the heavy weapons that were being, being supplied now, the longer range missile systems. But the reality is that the troops on the ground are running out of the old stocks of ammunition that fit the old equipment. So Secretary General there speaking very specifically, we've heard about it before, but part of the plan to transition Ukrainian forces in totality seems to be his implication away from the Soviet era weaponry into NATO era and style of weaponry because there is the equipment and the ammunition to resupply um, the need obviously to train Ukrainian forces. But these are very, very substantive ways that we expect to get locked in at the NATO Leaders Summit in Madrid in two weeks. Very substantive ways. The NATO is responding to Russia's aggression and it's exactly the opposite response that President Putin had wanted. More NATO and not only that, the Ukrainian forces with more sophisticated NATO equipment. Yeah, they are in for the long haul. I think he couldn't have reiterated that more. How to sustain unprecedented support for Ukraine. We're not going anywhere. Nick Robertson, great to have you with us. Thank you. Okay, straight ahead. Living the Lego life with the CEO in what can only be described as toy heaven. And we'll break down the company's plan piece by piece.
Welcome back to First Move. Even the world's largest toy maker can't avoid pricing pressures. Lego says it will raise the cost of some of its Lego sets to offset rising raw material and operation costs. The company saw its profits jump by a third last year thanks to an array of new products. And of course, it was a pandemic winner as families found fresh ways to entertain themselves during lockdown. Now Lego is working on building a better future piece by piece with a $1 billion carbon neutral factory in Virginia. The new plant is set to open in 2025. Plenty to discuss now, and I'm pleased to say joining us is Niels Christensen. He's the CEO of the Lego Group. Niels, always fantastic to get you on the show. Um, much to discuss. Let's talk about the decision to raise prices. What led to that? What kind of price rises are we talking about? I know it's a tough decision at any point, but decisions have to be made. Mm. Yeah, no, you, you're right. It's like, uh, I mean, all over the world right now, we do, we do see inflationary cost pressures on, on everything from freight to energy to, to uh, material cost. And of course, we've had the same. We've actually been trying for a period to absorb that, not to having, having to, to lead that on. But we will do some, I would say, limited price increases right now on parts of our portfolio this autumn. And we're still trying to, uh, we're still trying to protect as much as we can because, you know, our, our basic mission is getting the Lego play experience and our Lego sets to as many kids as possible throughout the world and allow them to indulge themselves into, into playing. So we are, we're trying to do this in the, in the best possible way, but uh, of course have to make sure that we, that we somehow, um, uh, yeah, somehow compensate also what's happening um, all around us. So, so that's what's happening right now. The beauty of Lego is the varied price points. So if you perhaps can't afford one of the more expensive pieces, you can trade down and get smaller pieces and, and still have fun. Are you seeing some of the substitution effect, perhaps, of the pricing pressure already happening for consumers? And, and if so, can you give us a sense of where in the world? No, I, I wouldn't say a lot of things are, are happening like that. We are, of course, trying to, to, to the extent possible, protect the sets that are primarily um, uh, uh, positioned for younger kids so that we we don't impact that much, but we are all in all. I think we're doing less than most, so it's uh, it's actually we're doing it pretty late. Uh, in that sense, I think we are trying to protect consumers the most we can. So I haven't seen much of that that impact, and I'm not expecting to see uh, to see a lot of that. I think we are we are actually relatively seeing a pretty well positioned. I think also on pricing. You're a calm voice amid, um, I think, huge concerns globally, which is very welcome. Does any of what you're seeing in the broader backdrop change your investment plans? And I mentioned the Virginia plant, and you can talk about that, but I, I watched you rapidly yeah. opening stores last year. I mean, I believe it was 165 new Lego stores, 150 new bricks and mortar sure, yeah. stores planned this year. Is that still the plan? Nothing's changed about that. No, nothing has changed about that. Mm -hmm. That's really, I mean, we have a, we, you've seen that over the last couple of years. We, we, we have a great momentum behind our brand and our portfolio and our ability actually to get, to get really exciting stuff to kids all over the world. And we're, we're driving that momentum and we're continuing along those lines. So as you said, we've opened a lot of stores. I'm right now in the New York City flagship store that we've opened <laughs> within the last year. Uh, so it's, uh, so it's uh, really, really exciting. And it, it is a great way now. To, to allow kids to come in and experience everything we do and, and really get the brand under the skin. And I think that excitement is, uh, is super important. So we're continuing along those lines. We'll continue to open stores. And, and as you said, we, uh, we're also trying to follow that search in demand by providing the capacity. And, uh, and it's only half a year ago we announced uh, to build a factory in Vietnam. And yesterday, yeah, we announced to build a huge factory in Virginia, uh, US. And I'm super excited about that.
Yeah, I mean, this is part of the plan to shore up supply chains in light in particular of what we've seen over the last two years. You try and produce as much as you can near where the client or the customer base is that you're producing for. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think there's several elements of that. That's been our strategy for quite a while. And, uh, and with the, I mean, th we have a great success in the Americans. There are so many American kids that are really falling in love with the brand and, and wanting to play. So we just want to make sure we have the supply chain to support that. And that needs to be a localized supply chain, uh, both from, uh, from our ability to react very quickly to what is actually in demand and what they want and what they need, but also in, in, in our mind, sustainability is really, really important. So it doesn't make much sense to have a supply chain where we would be shipping uh, Lego elements all over the world. We would much rather produce those packages very close to where the consumer actually is to react quickly and to have a, an efficient supply chain, but most of all, a very also C CO2 or sustainability efficient supply chain. And that is what we're getting, I think, by, by establishing ourselves in Virginia. No, I believe um, more than a third of your Lego stores worldwide now are, of course, in China as well. And there's a dual story there, which I want to talk to you about, which is this blending of the physical and the digital for Lego and what that means right. for the future. But also the challenges that we've seen of in lockdown in China specifically. Have you seen the same kind of pandemic bump effect that you saw there with people trying to entertain themselves at home? Um, just give us a flavor of, of what you're seeing there in particular and the importance of digital growth, mm. too. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually, I know a lot of journalists have been writing about the fact that it's been super positive that there was a, or that we have seen demand surging from, uh, from, uh, from COVID lockdowns. That I think is a, and there's two effects actually. It's, it's been quite negative when we've had mm. our factories closed and we've had stores closed and people could not get in. So on the contrary, we've actually seen quite a bit of, of new demand and excitement coming when stores would reopen. So right now, uh, when you point to China and the lockdown, that's a net negative. You cannot get people into stores. You can actually not get mm. product to people. So in that sense, it is, uh, it, is, um, uh, it is looking better now that they're actually opening up again. And we've seen that throughout the world that as COVID eased, as we all got back on the street, into stores, into offices, out of our homes, that has actually been accelerated the um, uh, the uh, the wish and the the the, the, the um, for kids to come into the brand and uh, so we've seen that as an increasing momentum and not the opposite actually. Yeah, it's such important clarification as well. In the end, this is a physical product that requires making somewhere, and those warehouses and things have to be open, as do the stores. Never mind the growth mm -hmm. that you see in in digital. Okay, let's talk about that blending of the digital and physical in terms of where children play. I believe you're talking to Epic the maker of Fortnite, to work out how yes. Lego plays into the metaverse and what role you can play in building that, and a safe one too, Niels. Because I think for, for parents out there in particular too, we know a lot of young children, too young perhaps, one could argue, are playing Fortnite. Yeah. How do you create a fun, friendly, safe environment in the metaverse? Like, What's the game plan? No, it's, a, it's a super question because, that, I mean, that is exactly the mission we're setting out to do. We believe actually by blending epic that probably has the strongest technology performance within the entire metaverse creation with a brand like uh, the Lego brand that really is trusted by parents and kids for being safe to making sure we look after uh, look after kids in the best possible way combining that we set out with this mission as you say to really create also digitally a super safe space where kids can actually be and they can be safe 
but it needs to be fun, it needs to be creative and imaginative and, and create everything, give the same experience as when you run into a store like the one I'm sitting in and you see these big uh, Lego builds and you get super excited about that we need to create also in a digital um, environment. And what we know is really that the kids, the kids can seamlessly jump from one to the other. They don't think about now I'm playing digitally and now I'm playing physically. They really like when they can see something digitally, they can move to the physical world, they can actually do something and they can move around and then they're back into digital and they can do stuff. And I think we are, as a company, yes. super positioned no challenge. to be the ones to build that, right? But it's yeah. not a small challenge. And uh, I was actually down in uh, North Carolina on Tuesday to work on exactly the mission that you, you I think you, you put out really well on how we solve for that. Come and, back, uh, and, uh, come give back us a little and talk bit of time to us. Until next year, huh? Yes, come back and talk <laughs> to us when you're ready to do it. And oh, I know there's a, little, <laughs> there's a little Lego Nils watching you firmly from the camera, so you can, uh, you can get marks out of 10 for your performance. It is true. Nils, great to chat to you. Nils Christensen <laughs> there, the CEO of Lego Group. Great yeah, to chat, as always, sir. Thank you. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. And the U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin is speaking. I'm going to take you right there and we'll listen to what he has to say. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, after Secretary Austin makes a few remarks, we'll turn it over to some questions. Secretary Austin. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's uh, always good to be back at NATO. I'd like to thank uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg for hosting this defense ministerial and for his tremendous leadership during this critical time. You know, back in 1949, President Truman said that NATO's task would be to build, quote, the structure of peace. And he said what we, what we must work patiently, he said that we must work patiently and careful, carefully advancing with practical, realistic steps in the light of circumstances and events as they occur. And that's just what this alliance has done. Since Russia's indefensible invasion of Ukraine, we have had to face events that we all hope would never come to pass. And this alliance has met the challenge with determination, with resolve, and above all, with unity. Together, we have responded swiftly and decisively to Russia's baseless and lawless and reckless invasion of Ukraine. NATO has shown the world that it remains the essential forum for consultation, decision, and action on transatlantic security. We are all proud to stand with the brave people of Ukraine as they defend themselves in their democracy and their sovereignty. And during this enormous crisis in European, European security, we're proud to stand together to strengthen the rules-based international order that protects us all. Our work together is indispensable, and these ministerials are invaluable. It's an opportunity to consult with one another and to share ideas, and to ensure that the Alliance is prepared to face the challenges of today and tomorrow. Together, we have risen to the challenge of Putin's war of choice 
in Russia's assault on transatlantic security. Our allies have activated NATO's defense plans. They've deployed elements of the NATO response force, and they've placed tens of thousands of troops in the eastern areas of the alliance, along with significant air and naval assets under the, the uh, direct command of NATO and supported by allies' national de uh, deployments. <clears throat> and NATO is also making plans to strengthen its deterrence and defense posture for the longer term, especially along the eastern flank. Over two highly productive days, this ministerial has laid the groundwork for important discussions and decisions at the NATO summit in Madrid later this month. Now, NATO is also close to welcoming two new members to the alliance. And Finland and Sweden have made the historic decisions to apply for membership. And that reflects the appeal of NATO's core values. The values that unite us as an alliance remain strong and timeless. And so does our shared vision of a stronger, rules-based international order in a more peaceful world. I am deeply proud of the progress that we've made over the past several months, and now the good work must continue. And during our time together, I've encouraged my fellow ministers uh, to do even more. We all share the responsibility to procure prepare and provide ready capabilities and forces to prepare this alliance for the challenges to come. NATO's preeminent task has not changed, to defend each and every ally's sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence. And that's why America's commitment to NATO and to Article 5 remains ironclad. Thank you for being here today, and I'm happy to take a couple of questions. Thomas Kuczka from Frankfurter Allgemeine. Thanks a lot. Uh, Thomas Kuczka, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. Um, Mr. Secretary, the reinforcement that NATO allies are considering regarding the eastern flank seems to be along the concept of scalable brigades. So this means that uh, NATO member states will rely heavily on their ability to quickly move forces to theater when it's necessary. We all know about shortcomings in logistics uh, and weapon supplies uh, uh, over the previous years. And I'm just wondering how confident are you that NATO member states will be up to the task and will in fact be able to fulfill um, this requirement uh, if need be? Thank you. Well, thanks. Uh I am confident. I have confidence in the process and the ability of our allies to uh, build the capabilities that we agreed uh, to, that, that we all need. You know, when I looked around the room in, the, in our meetings there and I saw the commitment and the, and the energy in that room, and, you know, I was, uh, I, it was heartening. It was encouraging. Um, as you heard the uh, Secretary General uh, mentioned earlier. There are things that you, we can do and will do uh, to make sure that uh, it's a lot easier to rapidly deploy forces forward. Some of those things include pre-positioning of equipment, um, 
putting forces uh, that are at home station on higher uh, levels of alert, uh, streamlining command and control so that it's easier to fall in on a, on a formation. So uh, recognizing the challenges of the past, I think you know, all of our allies have, have learned uh, from any shortcomings that we may have experienced in the past. Uh, and they'll build to, uh, to ensure that they have uh, the right capabilities uh, to provide uh, flexible and responsible and combat-credible forces uh, when the time comes. Oren Lieberman. See. Okay, we're going to leave the U.S. Defense Secretary speaking there after those NATO meetings. In many ways, reiterating what we heard from the NATO Secretary General, saying that NATO had swiftly and decisively responded to Russia's baseless, lawless and reckless invasion. He pointed out that this was about groundwork ahead of that Madrid summit in two weeks' time. He was asked a question about reinforcing the eastern flank. And, of course, the NATO Secretary General also talked about this and said, look, he didn't want to pre-announce ahead of what nation states are going to come up with here, but he was saying we can pre-position equipment, we can streamline command and control and learn from previous challenges. We'll be back with more after this. Stay with CNN. Welcome back to First Move and another day of global central bankers brandishing their inflation-fighting bazookas. As we were trying to tell you earlier, the U.S. Fed, the Bank of England and even the Swiss Central Bank raising rates over the past 24 hours. The first rate hike by the Swiss National Bank in 15 years. The European Central Bank also saying it will work to contain higher sovereign yields as they raise borrowing costs. All this triggering fresh pressure on global stock markets, with U.S. stocks giving back all of yesterday's strong gains in early trade. Look, that's the picture there. The Dow now falling below the 30,000 level. The S&P falling further into bear market territory, too. And Fed Chair Jay Powell saying at his press conference Wednesday that he's not trying to induce a recession by continuing aggressive rate hikes. He says the U.S. economy is strong enough to handle rising rates and the consumer is still in good shape. But the latest GDP Now reading by the Atlanta Federal Reserve shows the U.S. recessionary threat has only grown in recent weeks. Its latest real GDP survey shows zero economic growth this quarter after a 1.5% point drop in GDP in the first quarter. And a just-released data point now shows the U.S. housing starts plunging more than 14% in May. A soft landing for the economy or something a whole lot bumpier. Well, joining us now, Christina Hooper, the Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Christina, great to have you with us. I hope you have a crystal ball because I do feel like we still need it. Uh, the Federal Reserve, I think, I don't Jay Powell. Think it's the ball. I know you're looking for it. Yep, not there. Um, they're closer to reality, though, surely, in terms of what they're recognizing as the challenges to the economy and how they have to act. Oh, absolutely. Um, the Fed was, I think, very surprised, not so much by the inflation print, which was higher than expected, but by the move up in longer term inflation expectations. Mm. They had really been resting their laurels on the fact that the Michigan Consumer Survey showed that longer term inflation expectations had really flatlined over the last few months. They were certainly elevated, but they seemed relatively well anchored. That changed with the June estimate. And that, I think, had a lot to do with the Fed's decision to go for 75 basis points. They clearly feel they need to rein in inflation expectations. And that's more important than the economy because the economy appears to be on pretty solid footing. 
we say that, and yet I just mentioned that point, that GDP now um, reading, which suggests perhaps we could see zero growth in the current quarter. Christina, how resilient is the consumer? Because I think whether you're a business or you're an individual, one of the key questions is, um, at what point do we get to the tipping point where consumers go, okay, this feels really worrying and I'm going to rein in spending and I'm going to be incredibly cautious about the economy and, and how I behave going forward? Because that's the challenge, particularly as you point out, when inflation expectations start to adjust, when people fear rising prices for longer. Well, thus far, the consumer has been very resilient. And I think that's really been a function of the labor market, um, that we've seen such a tight labor market, such low unemployment, and really solid, quite significant wage growth in a lot of industries. So that has created a fairly strong consumer. But what the Fed is doing by tightening financial conditions this quickly um, could, of course, upend that resilient, strong consumer rather quickly. We're already seeing signs of layoffs. I mean, the goal would be, of course, if the Fed were to able to manage a soft landing that results in a, a big drop in job openings, but not so much in the way of layoffs. I think that's how we get to an environment in which the consumer stays relatively strong. And they were saying they're expecting now an unemployment rate of 4.1% by year end of 2024. So they're accepting that there are going to be some job losses as a result of the, the tightening that we're seeing. Do you think they can manage this, Christina, a soft landing? I think it's getting harder to manage mm-hmm. the soft landing. But in when we look back on this moment, we might say that the 75 basis point hike, while it was pretty extraordinary, it hasn't happened in decades, that that actually helped by front loading the slowing of the economy and helping to control inflation. So that really is the best case scenario. It is getting harder, though, admittedly, because as the as Jay Powell admitted yesterday, there are some really significant inflationary pressures that the Fed can't control for. It can only slow demand. Uh, it can't end the Russia-Ukraine crisis. It can't end uh, COVID shutdowns in China. So um, it, it's really all about cooling demand, but not too much. Yeah, we'll come back to this conversation. A short, sharp shock or shock and awe. Was that the turning point? We'll come back to it. Christina Hooper, the Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Great to chat to you. Thank you. Thank okay, you. coming up after the break, it's a must-go meeting for the staff at Twitter. The Tesla boss goes head-to-head with employees, and I'm sure they've got one or two questions. Some tough ones. Don't go away. Welcome back to First Move. As staff meetings go, this is one that Twitter employees are likely to remember. Elon Musk, who offered to buy Twitter for $44 billion, will speak to the social media's company Workforce today. He's likely to discuss his future plans and may clarify some controversial comments he made recently about working from home. Among others, Paula Monica joins us now to discuss. I mean, there's many things that he can discuss and talk about. But the first and foremost question is, are you really going to be the boss? Yeah, exactly, Julie. I was going to joke, uh, you know, the Who song, Meet the New Boss, but this may actually not be the new boss if he threatens again to walk away. But uh, by all accounts, it sounds like Musk is going to get some of the data on fake accounts and spam that he wants to see. And I think that will help guide this decision if he's going to stick with the deal or not. And even if he decides to walk away, you know, there's a signed deal. Twitter might 
go have some legal recourse in order to force him to do this deal. I mean, there's been a lot of speculation. Is Musk just posturing to try and get a lower price because of the market meltdown we've seen for all stocks, but particularly social media lately? Yeah, I mean, this is a sign of commitment. Let's be clear. To your point, whether it's um, easy or really hard, it's sort of moving towards happening. The workforce as you pointed out, there's challenges more broadly in the tech sector. We've seen it. We've seen hiring freezes at Twitter beyond hiring cuts. If you don't show up, we will assume you have resigned. That was the message from, from Elon Musk to those that were perhaps hoping to work from home. Tough love. Yeah, I think Twitter uh, employees will rightfully have legitimate questions for Elon Musk, and they might be able to make the argument whether or not they persuade Musk or not, if he does take over the company, remains to be seen. But there's a big difference between a programmer or other white-collar tech job at Twitter and someone who really needs to be in a manufacturing facility like Tesla. So, Twitter employees could make the case that much like uh, you know other uh, office jobs, you can work from home and have fewer distractions. You're able to work longer hours because you don't have a commute. Will Musk hold everyone's feet to the fire, though? And much like he's doing with Tesla, say, show up at Twitter offices wherever they are, because if, if you're not there, we're going to assume you don't want a job here anymore. Yeah, and he's got more people. And to there could be from. layoffs anyway just because of what's going on in the macro economy. So it could be an excuse to prune people. Paula Monica, watch this space. Great to have you with us. Thank you. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at GChatterleyCNN. And to the world, Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.